Good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Andrew Evans. I am a deacon and a pastor here at Church of the Resurrection. Let me encourage you to open up your Bibles back to Micah chapter 4. It would be helpful if you're able to follow along as we're looking at this passage together. Today is also Christ the King Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the liturgical calendar of this year. Next week starts Advent. It's upon us, guys. And during this day, today we celebrate the reign of Christ. And even as we're celebrating the reign of Christ, I think for so many of us there's this deep sense of longing, desire for the reign of Christ to spread over the whole world, isn't there? We know Christ reigns, but we see so many places where the world is broken. And we want Christ to reign fully, for him to come back and consummate his kingdom and to bring justice and wholeness and flourishing to this world. And our passage today in Micah actually meets us in this longing. Because it tells us that God does promise salvation, does promise the kingdom of God to his people. But at the same time, this kingdom actually starts to, to overturn some of our expectations for what this kingdom looks like. So let's look at this passage together, but before we do, let's, let's pray. Father, we praise you for the reign of Christ. We pray that he would come back soon and reign over everywhere, that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Speak to us today in your word, through your spirit. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I imagine some of you noticed recently that we had an election. Uh, was, there were a couple headlines about it. Maybe you missed it. I don't know. But there was one issue that was actually motivating voters more than any other issue. Exit polling found this. And that issue, maybe not surprisingly for some of you, is the issue of inflation. The declining value of our money is actually this issue that's right in front of voters, right in front of millions of us, all of us actually, and is driving how we're thinking about voting. There's this immediate problem right in front of us of the declining value of our money, and that is what was driving millions of voters. That was the overriding concern. Now, that's politics, but we actually do something I think similar in our faith. Think about it. What do you pray for when you're praying? Whether on your own or maybe in your residue. Very often, I suspect, and I've experienced, I've done this, these prayers are actually for things that are right in front of us. Maybe you got into a fight with your roommate or your spouse. Or maybe your boss is being really, really difficult. And you have this big assignment that's, that's staring down at you. You have this big problem that's right in front of you, oppressing me. And so you lift that up to God in prayer. We do this, don't we? Now, that's not a bad thing. I'm not here to criticize that. Um, God wants us to bring to him our needs, our burdens, our challenges. He wants to hear those from us. But at the same time, God does not promise us short-term fixes. God promises his people a long-term salvation, 
And that's in fact the, the point of this passage from Micah today. That God promises his people a long-term salvation through the kingdom of God. Micah here is writing and speaking to a people who are facing an existential immediate threat right in front of them. There's this army of a foreign empire, the Assyrian empire, that's bearing down on them. And is threatening to destroy them, to tear down their walls, to kill their people, to, care, to um, carry off the rest to a foreign land, to destroy their country. They're facing an immediate threat. And in this passage, God is promising his people salvation. But in point after point after point, in this passage, God is overturning their expectations for a short-term salvation. And he's driving them to this long-term view of the kingdom of God. And we want, need to have the same vision as God is giving to his people then. God promises his people, God promises us, not a short-term fix for our problems, but a long-term salvation. And we need to hold in view this long-term, counterintuitive salvation as we go through life. So I want to work through this passage in four sections, four elements of the kingdom of God that this unfolds for us. First, God promises salvation for the lame. Second, with justice. Third, through a backwater king. And fourth, for a counterintuitive victory. So God promises salvation first for the lame. Second, with justice. Third, through a backwater king. And fourth, for a counterintuitive victory. So God first promises salvation for the lame. Here in, in this passage, Micah is looking forward to this grand vision of the people of God. But this description probably would have confused the original hearers in a number of ways. Because the, the people of Israel this time, they need, they think that they need strength. They need fortification. There's this army, this constant threat from of this army and this foreign empire that wants to take over and destroy them. And so they think that they need power. They need strength to, re, to resist this kingdom. But the kingdom of God, as describes for us, is not founded on strength or on the strength of armies. It's founded on the weak and on the seemingly worthless. Look at verses 6 and 7 here with me. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. This description of the kingdom of God, not as strong and powerful, but it's founded on the weak, on those who seem worthless, those who've been cast off and pushed away. This would have been immensely confusing and maybe even discouraging for them as they're building up their armies to try to fight the Assyrians. And in so many ways, this is a surprising word for us as well. Because in so many ways, we know that we need strength in order to survive, both at a macro level and at sort of on a personal micro level. So society-wide, during the Vietnam War, you were able to be exempt from the draft if you had some sort of disability. 
And in Ukraine right now, actually, they're keeping all fighting-age men in the country. But if you have a disability, you can leave. Because we see, we, we think, the world tells us, shows us, that strength is what countries need, is what societies need. Even in our personal lives, we do this, don't we? What do you do with your LinkedIn profile? What do you do on your social media page? What do I do with my LinkedIn profile? <laughs> Very often what we're doing is we're showing our strengths, our capacities, our power, our ability. And we're trying to sort of hide or paper over our weakness. Now there's a measure of prudence in this, certainly, because we know what the world is requiring of us. But see how the, the values of the kingdom of, of God are the exact opposite. They turn on their head the values of the world. God here is choosing not the strong, not those with great LinkedIn profiles, not those with certification after certification. God here is choosing the weak and the lame. God here is choosing to build his kingdom, not with the powerful, but with those who are hurting, those who have been cast off. This, these are the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. He chooses the weak, and he decides to build his kingdom with them. And we actually see this in Jesus, in the kingdom that Jesus is building in the New Testament. Jesus spends time not with the noble and the strong, but he builds a ragtag follower, group of followers who are, end up being rather cowardly and who are really impulsive. He eats with prostitutes. He says upside down things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. You see the upside down values of the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom that Micah is foreseeing here. This is the kingdom that Jesus Christ is bringing into the world through his church. And this kingdom, these, these upside down values, should change how we live and even how we pray. We need to be prudent with how we present ourselves to the world, but at the same time, we don't need to be afraid of exposing our weaknesses, especially when we're in the people of God. Vulnerability, being true about what is wrong with us, is an acknowledgement of the fact that God uses the weak, God uses the lame. And this is, these are the people that he's pulling into his kingdom when we pray, we should absolutely pray that God heals us and heals our friends. I was doing this yesterday for some friends here. That God would heal their daughter. But at the same time, we should pray knowing that God uses this weakness to expand his kingdom. God is not a God who has no use for those who are weak, for those who are struggling. God uses the weak God uses those who are struggling and he builds his kingdom with precisely these people. Friends, isn't this good news? Isn't this good news for us who are weak, who are hurting? That God builds his kingdom with us. Not in our strength, but in our weakness. And our focus should be on the kingdom of God here because that's the focus for Micah. That's the focus for Jesus. Look at verse 8. And you, O tower of the flocks, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Kingship will return to Jerusalem. 
But even here in this word that Micah is giving, his hearers back in Israel would have been probably confused, disoriented, probably upset as well. Because here they, they have a king, and they think that they need their king that they have right then to bring them salvation. But here, even here, he is overturning and subverting their expectations for a short-term fix and pointing them again to a long-term salvation. Micah prophesies the return of a kingdom, which obviously implies that the kingdom is going to be lost at some point. And then the people react. They start to yell out. And Micah notes this and, and responds in verse 9. But he responds with some pretty biting sarcasm in verse 9. And they're saying, whoa, 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 hold on. Wait, what do you mean that we're going to lose the kingdom? He says, oh, wait, do you, do you have a king? Where's your king? I'm sorry. Where's your counselor? Do you have a counselor? I'm confused. Do you feel the, the snark, the sarcasm there? But right after this biting sarcasm, he snaps into this really foreboding prophecy for them. Look at verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. For the people who originally heard this, this was good news wrapped up in a whole lot of bad news, wasn't it? This is God is promising them that, that he's going to rescue them, but not here in their own houses. They, what they want, what they think they need, is salvation now, here. They need salvation from this problem. God will rescue them, but it won't be at the time or the, the place that they think. Because the reality is they think that they have this enemy out there, but the, the, the enemy that God is going to defeat, first and most primarily, is not the enemy out there, but the enemy that's in the heart of God's people. The enemy that he's going to defeat is their sin and their rebellion. For hundreds of years, the people of God have rebelled against God. They've sinned, they've rejected him. The king before the king who's on the throne here sacrificed his own son. Really awful, atrocious things. And in response to this rebellion, God is going to punish them. And this punishment has the effect of purifying his people. God here is going to strip them down to a bare remnant. A bare remnant of people who will be the conduit for God's promises going forth into the world. It's like if you don't show up for work for days and days and weeks and weeks on end, eventually you're going to get fired. Even if your dad is your boss. God loves his people. He is faithful to his people here. He will rescue them, but he will not let them live in sin. God hates sin. He hates the rebellion of his people. And he loves his people far too much, far too much, to let his people just live in their sin. God's not a, a doting but senile grandparent who's just happy to show up every six months. God is a righteous king who calls his people to holiness. And so the salvation that God gives us is not cheap. It's not cheap. 
It comes with justice, and it comes with discipline. And we see this most primarily, most poignantly at the cross, where God loves his people but hates sin so much that he sent his son to die for it. And in fact, just as Micah is talking about Israel being exiled out of the land here, Jesus reenacts that, where he's carted out of the city, outside of the walls, and there outside of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus is brutally executed for the sins of his people. Jesus was exiled in order to bring his people back to him. Jesus went through this punishment so that you would not have to. This is how much God loves his people but hates their sin. Our salvation is not cheap. It is costly. Salvation comes with justice. So if first, salvation comes for the lame, and second, salvation comes with justice, third, salvation comes through a backwater king. And even here, again, Micah is subverting, is overturning their expectations for a short-term salvation. Now here, when Micah's talking to them, there's still a king on the land. We've, we've noted that already. There's still a king. But look at verse 2 of chapter 5. This famous verse is only appropriate as moving it into Advent. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The people of Israel are looking for a king who will be able to save them. And they have a king, so they're looking for a king out of the city of Jerusalem. But Micah here is saying, that king that you need, who's going to come, who I'm going to send, is not going to come out of Jerusalem. It's not going to come from the line of kings that you already have. In the very next verse, actually, this, it tells us that this king is actually going to come too late for, to prevent them from being exiled. They're still going to be exiled. And so the people have to be wondering, what good is this king from a, from a backwater town south of Jerusalem coming too late anyway to help us, what good is this king going to be? What good is this king? But verse 4 tells us that this king is exactly what his people need. Look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This untimely king from a backwater town is exactly what they need. But he's not coming in the way that they expect, is he? Not coming in the way they expect. And it raises the question, why? Why is God saving them in this way? Why is God acting in this way to bring them a savior? And verse 4 actually gives us a clue. It says that they will go secure as he shall be great to the ends of the earth. As the name of the Savior will be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus comes in the time that he comes in order to be exalted in the world and so that all of his people would look to him for salvation. So that Jesus would be exalted. So that his people would look to him for salvation. 
would look to him in worship, would glorify him and not glorify themselves. The end of chapter 4 actually gives us something very similar here. Israel here has been depicted as, as defeating their enemies. And what do they do with all the spoil? They don't take it back to their own closets. They bring it to God. They're coming back to God. God saves his people in this way in order to bring them back to himself. For they would be faithful to him. And the same is true for us. God subverts our expectations for how salvation should work in order to draw us back to himself. We see this in the life of Jesus. He worked in a very counterintuitive way. He came in the fullness of time, but in in an odd time in some ways. And in order to defeat his enemies, as any good king should, he died for his enemies. He died for you and for me. This is radically overturning the way that a, a king should and normally does save his people. But he's subverting, subverting our expectations in order to draw us to himself and in order to draw us into his mission for the world. He conquers us by dying for us in order to buy us for himself. Because in reality, nothing could be greater than having Christ and being in his kingdom. So this king, this unexpected king from a backwater town, brings this glorious salvation. And it shows us here, this passage, this final section of the passage, shows us that this king brings an unconventional victory to his people. Now we need to be very clear about one thing here. Victory will come to God's people. This is absolutely clear. Look at verse 9 in this passage, the last verse. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Now these are strong words, aren't they? And if we're honest with ourselves, there's probably part of us that feels a little bit awkward about these words. Doesn't God tell us to love our enemies? This feels maybe not loving, it maybe even feels kind of colonial, defeating our enemies, subduing them under our feet. What do we do with this language? But the reality is that the triumph of God's people is a good thing, and it is actually exactly what the world needs. Because this victory is not a victory of one culture over another. The kingdom of God has room for every tribe, every nation, every language. This is not the triumph of one culture over another. This is the people of God triumphing over their enemies. And this is a good thing. I was out for a bike ride yesterday morning when it was quite cold with a friend. And we, as we're riding down the street, he pointed out a place where there had been a, um, a carjacking less than 48 hours before. And then a few blocks later, we see a line of police cars and an ambulance with all of their lights flashing, right into scenes, dealing with, with some issue. Friends, the reality is that the world is broken in so many ways. There are rays of light that come through, but they come through in a bright because of the darkness that we see every day. 
The world is broken and it needs to be conquered by the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is the only thing that will bring wholeness and life, restoration and peace to this world. And so the, the victory of the people of God is not a victory of, of us and our strength. Remember, the people of God, the remnant, are lame. They're weak. God makes them strong. This victory of the, of the people of God is the victory of God himself and the spread of his kingdom. This is what the world needs, and we should not apologize for the victory of the people of God and the kingdom of God. It is good news. But even here, as we're talking about the victory of the people of God, this passage again, yet again, subverts and overturns our expectations for what this victory looks like. And even what a short-term victory could look like. Here he's returning to the idea of a remnant, that these people will defeat their enemies. And look at the um, look at verses seven and eight with me here. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man or wait for children. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. The victory of God's people will be as irresistible as the dew, as strong as a lion. But notice the positioning of these images. The dew is on top of and sort of throughout the grass. The lion here was actually in the midst of the forest, in the midst of the animals. The people of, of Israel, as they hear this, they're probably thinking that victory looks something like our walls being strong, our enemies being way over there, and there being this nice big separation between us. But this, notice how this image, these images, just radically overturn that idea. Because victory here doesn't look like separation. And, and pushing them away. It actually looks like integration. It looks like being in the midst of the nations. This posture that the people of Israel would have had them is being overturned here by God. Because the Savior gives his people a different posture, one that's not integrated, one that's not isolated and insulated, but one that's integrated. Well, these images are striking, but I think Jesus gives us another image that's actually really helpful for thinking through what this kind of integration looks like. Jesus says to his people that you are the salt of the world. And typically when you're using salt, you don't have it in a little, in a little pile over on one side, and you kind of look at it, and you enjoy its presence, and you don't do anything with it. That's not what you do with salt, is it? No. You've got a salt shaker, and you crank it out and spread it over the entire meal. That's what you do with salt. And the result is that the salt improves the food. Maybe it preserves it. Maybe it improves the flavor. But the salt improves the food. It doesn't lose its saltiness. But as it's, it's integrated, it transforms. And it makes the food better. And this is what it means for us to defeat our enemies. It doesn't mean walling ourselves off. It doesn't mean othering the world. It doesn't mean, mean pushing them away. It means being in the world and being salt for the world with the gospel of Jesus, which is the only hope 
for life and restoration and wholeness in the world. Now, very practically, this means having friendships with non-Christians at work. It means inviting your non-Christian neighbors over to your house. With the education for our kids, I know this is a tough and touchy topic, but it means educating our kids in such a way that they don't fear the world, but that they're actually prepared to go into the world and to bring the gospel of light into the world. Very tactically, maybe this kind of living as salt in the world looks like inviting non-Christians to the lesson and carol service in a few weeks. Just a thought. Something like that. This is the victory that God gives his people. Where we press our lives into the world, knowing that God has made his people as irresistible as the dew, as strong as lions. So we step out into the world with confidence, knowing that God will use us to transform the world and to bring life to the world. This is the unconventional, long-term salvation that God calls his people to. He calls his people to be in the world, to conquer the world, for the life of the world. This is what we're called to. God assembles the lame. He brings them to himself through the justice of the cross. And he leads them after his unexpected but perfect son. And he draws us out into the world to bring the light of the gospel to the world. This is the salvation that God gives to his people in his love. So together, let's follow Christ the King in this kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.